You may be seated. Well, good morning, Emmaus Road. Good to be with you. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 17, and it's printed on page 7 of your worship guide. And if you're using the Pew Bibles over there, it's on page 555. Well, there is a story about two sisters. They were sitting down for tea in the home of the younger sister. She lived out in the country. Uh, She was married to a peasant farmer. And the older sister who had come to visit, she lived in the city. And she was married to a a rich tradesman. They had a kind of a fancy, comfortable life in the city. And the older sister was boasting to the younger sister about her life in the city and all the things that they had and how wonderful it was. And the younger sister, you know, got a little defensive and said, hey, I like my life here in the country. We got... We got everything we need, everything's just fine, and you know, we don't have all those temptations that you guys have there in that city life. Well, the younger sister's husband was in the next room overhearing this conversation, and he was thinking to himself, yeah, she's right. You know, from, from our childhood, we've been tilling the earth. Uh, we have, we're peasants, we don't have time for all the nonsense that people do in the cities. But the only trouble is that we don't have enough land. And he said, if I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. Well, the devil was listening in to him saying this. And the devil said to himself, we will have a tussle. I'll give you land enough. And by means of that land, I will get you into my power. So the man sets off on a quest. A quest for more land. But as you can imagine, the quest is not really just about the land. It's a quest for independence. It's a quest for power. It's a quest for meaning and purpose and significance, satisfaction. And we've been following a similar quest in the book of Ecclesiastes. A quest by this man named Koheleth. We're introduced to him in the beginning of the book. He's called the preacher the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, and he had it all. He had riches, he had land, he had servants, he had food and entertainment, anything that he could ask for. Yet we hear this refrain over and over in the book, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, chasing after the wind. And he paints this picture for us of life under the sun, as he calls it. In the first chapter, he asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? These existential questions, they confront all humans at all times, everywhere. People are always asking these questions about life. And I think we find ourselves wrestling with these similar questions in our age, don't we? Is this rat race really worth it? All the running around, all the toiling, all the busyness, at the end of the day, is it really worth it? Is there anything really to gain? Is a bigger house or a fancier car really going to make me happy? If I can't take it with me, what's the point? We find ourselves in a fallen world often operating from an under-the-sun mentality 
feeling trapped in what feels like this never-ending cycle of the quest for more. Yet we all know from experience that more is never enough, right? But what if there is a different approach? An above-the-sun approach to thinking about these questions. An approach that turns this whole idea of gaining on its head. What if the way to gain is really to lose? Well, let's continue our journey with Koheleth. I want to preface where we're going with two quick things to pay attention to. First, we're going to be looking this week and next week at chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 12. This is really kind of one whole section. Uh, I'm going to be preaching this Sunday, and then Danny Heinemann from RUF Madison is going to be here next Sunday. Uh, I kind of got the negative uh, part of the passage, the kind of the, the problem. There's not much positive here in this text. Um, Danny next week is going to kind of continue with the problem, and there's a little glimmer of hope in there, and if you want to read ahead, you can, you can look at that. And then one other thing, I don't know if Dan has mentioned the book from Zach Eswine yet. It's called Recovering Eden, The Gospel According to Ecclesiastes. There's a whole series of books called the, it's the Gospel According to the Old Testament. And Zach Eswine's book, if you're looking to dig into Ecclesiastes a little bit more, Recovering Eden, it's a fantastic read. He's just a, a great writer, really engaging. But in, in his analysis of chapter 5, if you remember last week, Dan talked about Koheleth goes to church, right? He goes to the house of God, and he kind of gets a, a, a right perspective on things by being in the house of God. Eswine says the transition from, from chapter 5, verse 7, to chapter 5, verse 8 here is as if we, we go... We're in the house of God, and the preacher takes us out on the steps and gives us a set of binoculars, and we look out into the world, and we see all the problems that are going on out there in the world. So we're kind of going to take that approach a little bit, being reminded of, of where we are, the truth that we've learned, being in the house of God, and then looking out into the world from that perspective so that we can interpret and understand what's going on in the world. So let's go. Let's go to the front steps of the church and see what God has to tell us. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 17. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? <clears throat> Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. 
The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this morning you would open our eyes to see wondrous things out of your word. God, that you would teach us, that you would change us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to be looking at here, and if you're taking notes, verses 8 and 9, is the harsh reality of power. Koheleth begins by pointing his readers to the harsh reality of the struggle for power that exists under the sun. See there in verse 8 that the poor are oppressed, justice and righteousness are violated. But then he tells us, do not be amazed. And then what follows the phrase, do not be amazed, I think can be interpreted in a couple different ways. Uh, If you see the footnote, if you have the ESV, if you see the footnote at the end of verse 9, if you follow that down, it says, um, sorry, the meaning of the Hebrew verse is uncertain. So uh, with Hebrew, often with Hebrew poetry, and some, there, there's just some odd words in Hebrew that we don't really know exactly what they mean or how they should be translated. This phrase here about a king committed to cultivated fields, we're not really sure how this should be translated. Um, the first option is, is how it's translated here in the ESV, and this is the more positive option. Um, kind of ta- looking at after he says, do not be amazed, the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So basically this option is that even though there's some corruption, even though the, some of the higher officials aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, ultimately there's a king over all of them who is committed to gain for the land and committed to cultivated fields and then everyone gains from it. So that's the positive option. The negative option, uh, looking at verse 8, where it says, official is watched by a higher official. There could be some irony in this phrase, basically saying they're all just watching each other's backs. Uh, They're all looking out for each other, and that's why the corruption is allowed uh, to continue. And I think the New Living Translation, which is a little bit of a a looser translation, but the New Living Translation really brings out this meaning for verses 8 and 9. It says, For every official is under orders from higher up, and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. I hear all the government people out there saying amen. Um, And then verse 9 says, Even the king milks the land for his own profit. So these are two very opposite kind of ways to translate this. One could be kind of positive, one is is totally negative. I don't know which one is right, but I think world history testifies to the second option, right? Kohelis' advice to us in light of this, if this is what he is trying to say, either way, he's saying, do not be amazed at this. Now his, his saying, do not be amazed, isn't just saying, hey, suck it up and deal with it. This is the way the world is and get over it. But he does want us to look to the Lord and to trust the Lord in the midst of these things. If you were here a few weeks ago, I was sharing from Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 16 and 17, Koheleth saw in the place of of justice, there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. 
And he concluded, his conclusion after seeing that was that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. So do not be amazed when you see these things because God will judge. Do not despair. Do not despair when you see injustice and unrighteousness because they are not the end of the story. I love Psalm 73. The psalmist begins Psalm 73. He said, My feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped. Or my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes down a little bit. He said, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, he's saying, why should I live this upright life when all these wicked people around me are doing evil things and they are prospering? But there is, then there's, a, there's a, a turning point in that psalm, and if, you've, if you're familiar with this, this will jump out to you. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, this whole idea of the wicked prospering, it seemed to me a wearisome task and that word there for wearisome is the same word that's used for toil over 20 times in Ecclesiastes. It's wearisome to try to look out into the world and understand why are the wicked prospering? Why am I trying to live my life for God and everything around me is falling apart? And these people who are just living it up, partying, living, living the life, not caring about anything, they're, they're doing all right. That's what he's wrestling with here. In the next verse, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So just like Koheleth went to church, right? And got a right perspective. The psalmist here goes into the sanctuary of God and says, okay, now I understand. Now I can see clearly. Where are we feeling this weariness? This, where are we feeling that it's a wearisome task of understanding the prosperity of the wicked or the corruption of power in government or in the workplace. Maybe it's corporately. Maybe we all feel it to some degree. We feel the, weary, the, we feel the weariness trying to understand things or trying to change things around us, whether it's powerful corporations or whether it's government corruption. Maybe it's individually. Maybe you've been mistreated or oppressed or misunderstood. And you might ask yourself, how could a just God, how could a good and righteous God allow this to happen? Well, I can't fully answer that question for you. But I can tell you where to go to find the answer. Psalm 73 closes with these words. The psalmist says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So we go into the sanctuary. We go and we find refuge in the Lord. And it doesn't mean that everything in the world makes sense. But it means that we have a right perspective on how to approach these things and how to endure and how to live in a Christian way when we experience these things. This is the, the over the sun perspective that we've been talking about. 
We need to go from having an under-the-sun perspective to having an over-the-sun perspective. That's what's needed to get us through this book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> that is 12 chapters of, of weariness, right? And then we get to the end and we see more clearly. This is what we need to get through the realities of life under the sun. Next, Koheleth is going to tell us about two kinds of people and their search for satisfaction under the sun. Verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. I encourage you to go Google the phrase, money can't buy happiness. And the first number of things that come up on the first page are all about all these research studies that have, done, have been done. Research study after research study proving that money can't buy happiness. As if we need professional researchers to spend all this time and money to tell us that money can't buy happiness. They are confirming what Koheleth thousands of years ago so plainly told us and what the word of God testifies to. And we've all heard the phrase, more money, more problems, right? Verse 11 lays this out. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? We've all probably heard these stories, whether it's entertainers or athletes. You hear stories about, you know, signing the big contract, and there's some good stories, right? You, you hear of maybe the football player who signs the contract and goes and buys a house for his parents, right? Fulfills some childhood promise and some childhood dream uh, to his parents. But for every one of those good stories, there's hundreds of bad stories, right? The third cousin who you haven't seen since kindergarten who calls you up and says, hey, I need a new car, right? And you've got the money now, so you know, he's not going to drive a Buick. He's going to drive a Benz, right? Or go read about people who win the lottery. Read about the drama that comes with that, right? And how people end up, usually end up bankrupt after a few years. More money, more problems. So if money can't buy happiness and satisfaction, where can we find happiness and satisfaction under the sun? What is the point in toiling? Koheleth contrasts two types of people in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I love the first half of this verse. I think it's a truth. We're talking about sweet is the sleep of a laborer. I think it's a truth that we see reflected in Psalm 127. You may be familiar with the first part of this psalm. You've probably heard, heard it many times. Psalm 127, and listen to the common language that's found in Ecclesiastes. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. 
Brothers and sisters, how are we doing at living this out? Is our labor in vain? Or is the Lord building the house? Are we staying awake in vain? Or is the Lord watching over the city? Are we rising up early and going late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil? Or are we getting sweet sleep? Or in Kohelet's words, are we sleeping sweetly, well, that's a tongue twister, sleeping sweetly no matter how much we've eaten, or are we lying awake with full stomachs, full pockets, and empty souls? This is not just a plea for all of us to, you know, cast off our our white-collar jobs and go work in the fields and, and toil away earning, you know, grinding it out, earning a paycheck by sweating it out. That's not what I'm talking about. It's also not a condemnation of all wealth. And again, Danny's going to touch on this a little bit next week in, in the positive message, but wealth and possessions can be good gifts from God. They can be used for God and his glory. So I'm not saying that all wealth and all possessions are bad. But the question that I want us all to consider is where are we finding our satisfaction in life? Are we satisfied in the Lord? Are we trusting him to provide for all of our needs? Are we looking to wealth and possessions instead of him? As if these questions don't expose our vanity, don't expose our emptiness enough, in the final section, Koheleth paints an even grimmer picture of the vanity of riches. verses 13 in verses 13 to 17 he points out two grievous evils that he has seen under the sun the first one is losing riches in a bad venture and having nothing in his hand to leave to his son he's talked about this already in chapter 2 and chapter 4 toiling for all these things and not knowing who it's going to go to not knowing if the person after him, whether it's his son or whether whoever gets his inheritance, whether they're going to just squander it away or whether they're going to use it wisely. So there's this wrestling that he's been having. And now he gets to, to this section where he's talking about it being foolish. It's foolish to labor and to toil and to lose it all and then have nothing to give to the next generation. And I want to ask, what does the next generation really need from us? What do they really need? What kind of inheritance should we be passing on to the next generation? Of course, there's commands in Scripture to take care of our families, to provide for our children financially. But I think first and foremost, it's a spiritual legacy that we need to leave for our children. Parents, I want to encourage you, don't leave your children empty-handed spiritually. Pray with them. Pray for them. Teach them God's word. Teach them about God's character. Confess your sins to them. Ask them for forgiveness when you sin against them. Trust me, speaking from experience, it happens a lot in my household. Leave them a spiritual legacy. And not just for parents. Here in this congregation, all of us are responsible. All of us have a role to play in passing on a spiritual legacy to the next generation. Some of you, I don't know if you've, if you've been here and been part of a, a baptism and we've baptized the little ones, but when we do that, we take a vow as a congregation 
And the question is, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? And if you have ever raised your hand and said, I do, then the responsibility is on you to pass on a spiritual legacy to the next generation. So I want to encourage you and challenge you with that. And parents, trust me, I know parenting is hard. We are tempted by the pressing physical needs, the pressing material needs, food, clothes, diapers, school supplies, braces, college tuition. But those things are all temporary. They're all under the sun necessities or desires. Koheleth challenges us to remember our birthday. Now, none of us actually remember our own birthday, but if you've witnessed the birth of a child, you have seen this. And this is the second grievous evil in verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? There is a similar verse in the book of Job. You remember the first chapter of Job. He loses everything. And in the end of the chapter, he falls down to the ground. He worships God and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. These are reminders of the phrase we say all the time, right? You can't take it with you. You came into the world with nothing, and you will go out of this world with nothing. Paul reminds Timothy of this truth in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. That's a passage that speaks very clearly to this truth. Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, these pangs that Paul speaks of are what Koheleth describes in verse 17. And it is a very dark picture. It's a picture of loneliness, emptiness, of great loss and discontentment. Verse 17, he says, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is the exact opposite of what Paul said, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, do you remember our story from the beginning of the man who, if he had just a little bit more land, wouldn't fear the devil himself? His name is Payam. And he's the main character in Leo Tolstoy's short story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? If you've never read it, you need to go read it. It's fantastic. 
But the story continues. He goes on a journey. He continues to gain more and more land. He gets a bigger farm. I'm going to ruin the story for you, sorry, but go read it anyways. Um, he, he continues to go on. He, he gains more, more land, more property, and it's never enough, and he keeps going, he keeps going. And finally, he gets the opportunity of a lifetime. A friend comes to him and tells him about this far-off people. They, they speak a different language. They live far away, and they have all this land, and they just live in tents, and they don't really care. Come take as much land as you want. So he goes for a very small fee, uh, puts his money in his hat, and the, the deal is he can, he can take as much land as he wants, but from sunset to sundown, he's got to... He's got to make his course and get back to where he started before the sun goes down. So he throws his money in a hat and he starts, he starts walking, just you know, kind of taking his time. He knows he's got all day. Goes about a thousand yards, digs a hole, says this is his marker, keeps going. He, he keeps going farther and farther. He gets so far that, and, and they're kind of up on the hill where he started from. He's down in the, in the valley. He sees them really far away. He's thinking, okay, I should probably turn around and, and start going back now. I've, maybe I've gone a little too far. And the sun's high in the sky. He's starting to get hot. He's running out of water. His, his shoes are off. His feet are blistered. And he's, he's like, I got to get back. So he turns around and he's going. And the closer he gets, the more the more tired he is and the hotter the sun is. And finally, he's, he's getting closer and he realizes that he got a little bit greedy. And he's, he's getting close, but he shouts out, all my labor has been in vain. You think Tolstoy read Ecclesiastes? He finally makes it back just before sunset, falls down, reaches out, touches the hat, and he makes it. And this is how the story ends. The chief of the people said, Ah, what a fine fellow. He has gained much land. Pahim's servant came running up and tried to raise him, but he saw that blood was flowing from his mouth. Pahim was dead. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahim to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. This is a very sobering story. And Tolstoy really gets at the heart of the folly of our quest for more. And there's another story that you might be familiar with about the devil trying to tempt someone with a large piece of land. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, the devil took Jesus up onto a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It is this kind of discipleship that we are called to as Jesus' followers. Worship and serve God alone. This is where our quest for meaning and purpose begins to make sense. But there is a little bit more to the equation than that. Near the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus began to tell his disciples about his death and resurrection. Then Jesus called the crowds and he called his disciples to himself. And this is what he said in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Wealth and money and possessions cannot buy happiness, cannot buy satisfaction. And no matter, no matter how much stuff you get in this life, you cannot exchange it for your soul. I encourage you, lose your life by surrendering it to the one who lost his life so that you might live. The one who bore your sins on that cross so that you might be clothed in his righteousness. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. The one who could have had all the kingdoms of the world for all the wrong reasons. But instead, he remained faithful to God and he showed us a better way. He showed us an everlasting kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom that no money can buy. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded of the great love with which you loved us. Sending your son to come to this earth to not even have a place to lay his head, to be poor and broken on our behalf so that we might be rich through him. God, I pray that our eyes would be lifted up above the mundane, above the rat race of this life, that we would see you clearly, that we would see you in all your glory, that we would live for you, that we would live for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.